Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12. This series, what I'm excited about is to help you see your Bible as a whole. So we see the storyline continuing into um, the rebellion at Babylon. 
the lineages of Babylon, the sinful Babylon. We have Ehud committing kind of this, this rebellion to say that we will reach the level of God. We will be like God ourselves. And so God reaches a new humanity in that rebellion in Genesis 11. And then out of the families, all the different nations that get spread out from Babylon, God calls a single family. And that's what we get the second main place of new covenant is covenant with Abraham. Or um, Abram as it begins, and so we look at Genesis 12, Abraham is the sceptre, and they call him Abe, so that means you're going to have many sons. <laughs> I don't think it's too much of an endorsement. So, um, Abraham. Alright, so Genesis 12, out of all of these nations that have rebelled, God selects this one man, this one family, and forms a partnership with him by first making a promise. So Genesis 12, 1 to 3, these are, again, whatever you do to pinpoint the most important verses in your Bible, Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is a turning point in your Bible. It's a very important place. Uh, very important to the storyline of the Bible that you're going to read in these verses. So Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the world shall be blessed. Okay, so... does God want to do with humans? Bless them. These humans that are committed all this rebellion, what does he want to do? He wants to bless them. He cannot bless them in their evil, so he takes a remnant and forms a new partnership and promises this one human that I will bless you, but the purpose is to bless all the nations. All the families of the world shall be blessed through you. Now at this point, Abraham has really done nothing. The only thing we know of Abraham, Abram, up to this point, is that he's the son of a guy and has two brothers, and they're on the move, and his dad parts with him. His older brother dies, and his dad parts with him. That's all you know. Abraham doesn't hasn't done anything good or bad up to this point. We don't know anything about this guy. But God, out of his grace, just selects this human and forms this relationship with him and gives him this promise, I will bless you, and I will bless you for a purpose to be a blessing. Verse 7 of Genesis 12, he promises him the land. He says that I will bless you by, by anchoring you into this land. I will give you this land. I will promise this land to you and to your offspring. And at this point, we don't know anything about Abram. He's just been going. He doesn't say anything at this point. But Abram is what? A human. And what do we know of humans? They're pretty terrible. Like, they're really unreliable. And so if you follow this story, it's really interesting. If you follow the story in Genesis 12, the very next story, um, starting in verse 10, you have, you have Abram. He's in the land that God has promised him. Okay? So God has promised him this land. I will bless you and make you a blessing. And it says that this land goes into a famine. And so what does Abram do? 
he leaves the land. He doesn't trust God in the land that he promised him, so he leaves the land, and he goes down to another nation, Egypt. And in Egypt, he crafts this plan to deceive the ruler into, he knows that his 65-year-old wife is good-looking. It says she was, she was very attractive. She's 65 at this point, so y'all are too old. And he goes, you know, they're going to kill me because of you. So just say that you're my sister. So he's crafts a deception, and it says the princes of Egypt see his wife and takes her and gives her to Pharaoh. So in this story, Abram is playing the role of the serpent. It's a Genesis 3 replay. Abram is the one deceiving and crafting a plan of deception to set up Pharaoh to sin. And God intervenes. And plagues him. Well, let's just say he wasn't a blessing. So Abram wasn't a blessing to the first nation we see him encountering. He ends up bringing a curse on them. A plague. So this is this story is starting out really well. Like this guy seems like an awesome dude, right? Like he's he's, he's proven to be just another human. So like this is this is the story we're supposed to be getting. Like, what is God gonna do when his own people act more like the serpent? When his people are acting more like the seed of the serpent. Because like when you when you see like from Genesis 3.15, that where that promise that um, your seed, the serpent's seed, will be a, an enemy of the woman's seed. It's like you're not looking for sweetness. Okay? You're looking <laughs> you're looking for people who are giving in to the deception and they're they're partnering with the wrong seed. Like they've become the wrong seed. And so from the next story, Cain and Abel, you see the, the, the seed of what you think is the seed of woman, uh, Eve says, this is a, a son given to me by God. She thinks this is the Lord, and it turns out he's the enemy. So it, you have you have these, the dueling of seeds. Like, which seed are you going to be? And so you're looking for the seed of woman, and you think, okay, Abram, this guy, God has promised us a blessing, so maybe he's that. And in the very next story, he proves himself to be just like other humans, deceptive, lying, and untrustworthy. And so how's God going to do this? Well, he's already made the promise, so he's in it to win it. Okay, uh, he, he's going to be faithful. Okay, so you fast forward the story, and you get to chapter 15. And this chapter 15 is like one of two or three times Abram gets it right. Okay, so like what you're going to have to do when the story progresses is they're extremely honest about the humans God has to work with. Okay, they're not, the, the stories are not afraid to tell you the truth. And with Abram, the father of our faith, he gets it right three, maybe four times. Okay. So this is one of the times he gets it right. In chapter 15, he has just come back from a battle where he's delivered his men from God. And he and his, his servants have been this small little, little guerrilla warfare, uh, battles these big armies and wins and brings back uh, them from captivity. And, like, he's kind of freaked out because it's like a couple hundred of his servants were these 
this cup, this tiny little army, including a whole army, he could easily be overwhelmed again. And God says at the beginning of chapter 15, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. I'm going to be your protector. And then he, he repeats the promise. I will bless you. I will make you great. I'll make you a great nation. Uh, you will be fruitful and you will multiply. At this time, we know Sarah is barren. And she's not able to have a kid. And yet, God promises, I will bless you and make you fruitful. I'll make, just like the, the Eden blessing, I'll make you fruitful and make you multiply. And he takes Abram out. And he says, count the stars. If you can count them, then that's how much, that's how many seeds, that's how much seed I will give you. That's how many descendants I will give you. Now, the verse 75, I don't know how much is inside each seed, but enough to be able to realize, like, this is more than I can count. Okay? And this is one of, one of these most important verses in the Bible, Genesis 15, verse 6. And Abram believed God. He believed the Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham trusted God. And it made him in right relationship with God. It was counted as righteousness. What made him righteous? trusted God. God made him a promise and he trusted him. Sweet, Abraham, I guess you're doing really well. Verse 7, God says, do you see this land? I'm going to give it to you. Now Sarah promised you I'd give you this land. Verse 8, Abram's response, four. See how this is working? Okay, then God commands him to set up this ceremony that's repeated in Genesis 17, okay? Where he takes a cow, a goat, um, a, a dove, a turtle dove, I'm thinking one other animal. Anyway, he's supposed to cut them in half and make a bloody island. And you know, he takes on the vocation of a butcher for a day. And he, like, cuts these animals and makes a bloody island. You can hyperlink. So the only other time we see something like this in Scripture is in Jeremiah chapter 33, where there's two kings, and they're forming a covenant with one another, and they cut these animals and form a bloody aisle, and both the kings walk through the aisle, and they say, anyone who breaks this covenant will become like these animals. So the person who will break the covenant will die. We're forming a covenant, an unbreakable covenant, because the person who breaks it is going to be cut up like these animals. Okay? So God instructs Abram to form this bloody aisle. And then it says that Abram falls into a deep sleep. Hmm. I wonder where that's going to lead us. Because verse 2, God took Adam into a deep sleep. So he puts Abram into a deep sleep, and then he tells him, listen, your descendants, they're going to make in slavery. And I'm going to 
establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, your offspring's offspring, throughout their generations and everlasting forever, to be God to you, restoration of relationship, to be God to you, and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land smooth and everlasting possession, which I will be their God. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and this shall be a sign of the covenant between me and all Israel. <laughs> all right. I think I can keep, I, I think I can do it. All right. <clears throat> uh, just don't, don't answer me. Just you like, just think about the answer to that. Just hang on to that. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's a certain thing that's required There are certain parts of your body that are necessary to be fruitful and multiply, okay? And the parts of your body that mark your fruitfulness will now be marked by God. That your fruitfulness is a me. With me? Okay. All right, good. Now, I like the PG-13 version, okay? So, so now... Your fruitfulness is to be marked by me, God the Father. So the, the sign of the covenant of marriage, remember, now that you've had this covenant of circumcision, is that your fruitfulness is now marked by me. I will bless you, and now you're going to trust me by scarring a part of you that's going to be for your fruitfulness in order to trust me. Okay, that's going to that's take a lot of trust. Abraham's commitment in this covenant is simply to trust him. It's to, it's to, it's to trust where, wherever God leads and whatever God says. Trust him. And then teach your children to trust him as well. There's also some things said in Genesis 18 where um, God is saying that Abraham will teach his children, his offspring, in the way that is right or good. He will teach what is good and just. So he says, to teach your children my ways. But listen, the covenant with Abram and his family, Abraham and his family, is not based on Abraham's performance. Remember, it says he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. His righteousness is based in faith. Remember, Paul says, if you read, if you read this Bible and you walk away, you're being wise in salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And what God is asking this family to do is to don't trust your own scheme. Trust me. Don't try to make this happen for yourself. Trust me. And then you read the stories of these women, and that is exactly what they do not do. And yet God remains faithful to this family. And if, you, if, you, if you're reading this, it's a tough read, but Genesis 22, where you see God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. 
I mean, you already know in the story God forgives Paul's sentence. So what's going on here? It's if you look at even the literary roots, it's the opposite of the Jerusalem story, where Abram and Sarai, who were not trespassed, refused a slave in order to get a son. Now, in God's testimony, will you speak or will you trust me? And the trick here is to get that right. And we see this on the scene, but now that we've sort of seen the end of that, there's lots of things for you to say. That was Abraham's sin. That was the, the Abraham's sin story, too. It's not just like Jerusalem story that we have here. And then God stopped that from sin. But he trusted God. And you look at Isaac. Isaac? Rebecca, the same thing that his father did, lies about her being his sister, and ends up knowing that God blessed the younger Jacob and not Esau, the older, yet because he likes food, he likes Esau. So food is always a problem here. Favoritism, problem. So I am in his deceived by his son. In getting and the, the blessing going to Jacob, Jacob, from birth, he's a heel grabber. He's trying to grasp the blessing himself. Like, this is a pretty terrible family. And yet, God remains faithful to them. Right? That's just, and so, but Genesis is the, like the second half of Genesis, the 12 to 15, is the story of Abraham's family doing their very best to please God's heart. Like, you'll find a lot of creative and yet, the summary of the book of Genesis comes from the mouth of Joseph in chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph says this to his brothers, his brothers that deceived their father and told them that a wild animal killed their younger brother, and they, in fact, sold him into slavery, sent him into exile, and then Joseph is elevated from prison to the, to the throne, his leadership, and his brothers are like, hey, uh, Dad, Dad, before he died, said to forgive us. So, are we good? And Joseph says this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept in bondage for my sake. What you meant for evil... God was able to subvert the evil for good in order to save lives. And so the summary of the book of Genesis is humans doing our very best to commit evil, and yet somehow God is able to work with willing humans to bring about good even though they meant evil when it brings about salvation. And then it previews the rest of your Bible. So you follow the family of Abraham into Egypt, and they become slaves in Egypt. And then Exodus 1 to 18 is God's deliverance of the people of Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, through the Ten Commandments, and going to the promised land, and then the wilderness. 
which is interesting by itself. Yes, okay, God created you, but explicitly, the Spirit of Yahweh in a human is meant for that. It's supposed to be for the sake of bringing it out, that God specifically anoints his body to be able to construct all these cells and everything else. Being fully human is actually the same as having omnipotence, having the ability to tear down the world. So, so it's all set up. It's good. We've got the design. We've got the blueprints. We're good to go. And then there's chapter 22, where maybe the best part is, imagine the young couple madly in love with each other, and the groom has delivered the bride from the proposal, delivered her. is the affair. Idolatry is adultery. Scripture is very confident of the idolatry being there. They commit adultery on God. And God, in, in his relationship with Moses, God invites Moses into his presence. And that goes okay. And Moses intercedes with Yahweh. Read now chapter 33, 34, Moses is interceding for them. Uh, God is able, he, he works out a deal where God punishes the guilty but saves the nation uh, out of the nation of transgression. So if you skip that part of the story, you have right after chapter 30 and chapter 35, you have a repeat of the construction story. So it's like, this is really wild. God's pretty serious about these designs. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's just so much like a repeat of the previous chapters. And then you get to the end of chapter 40, and the tabernacle stands, and God's presence shows up in the tabernacle. And lo and behold, Moses can't go in. Because the evil the people of Israel have committed is so great that Moses, as their priest, can't enter into his presence carried that evil. And so there has to be an arrangement of how he's going to be able to, an evil, a people committed to evil are going to be able to be in God's good presence. Because there's a paradox to God's holiness. It's so good, it's dangerous. It's like the sun. The sun is unique in our solar system. It is a source of life. It is, it is good. Then you're in God's relationship with it. You get too close to it, you'll admit, you die. And that's what God's presence is like. You get near it without being properly equipped in that, in that covenant, going to die. And Leviticus 10 explains exactly what happens when priests can just not care and just flaunt whatever they want in God's holy, they're priests. They just burn them up. So Leviticus is, is a way of the people of God being near God's presence and still surviving. <laughs> and Leviticus 1.1 says, God spoke to Moses from the tent of meeting. Numbers chapter 1 verse 1 says, and God spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. So Leviticus works. Moses is able to go from outside to in. 
But we can see that that arrangement did not last long. It wasn't, it wasn't a perfect marriage. And Israel continued to doubt, continued to be faithless, continued to complain, continued to whine. And you fast forward to after 40 years in the desert because of their unbelief and their rebellion and their complaining. And the book of Numbers is just full of those stories. And they are pressing and strange and epic in some ways and there's some weird stuff in there. And it's just like, God is being super merciful to these people. This is like, yes, he's judging, but man, he can wipe them out easily. You get to the end of, of that 40-year journey and Deuteronomy is like Moses' last speech. It's his last, it's like fourth, it's the, it's the coach's fourth finger. Okay? It's like, all right, we, y'all are ready to go into the, the promised land, so let me give you your test run. <laughs> and chapter 6 is, some of you are familiar with famous uh, verses in the Bible. Deuteronomy 6, verses 3 through 6. Moses says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do this, or obey the covenant, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply image. You may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And you have these covenant statutes and commandments, which you have been betrayed, betrayed in the land of which you went to buy and live in the land that you chose to inherit in Canaan and Gaza. He says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So the way this is going to work, the way this is going to have to be is if you're going to trust and obey, it's not going to be just a, a work of action. It's going to have to come from the heart. And to do that, you're going to have to love God. And it's going to have to be from your heart. If you'll love God with all your heart, then you're going to trust and obey Him. And then you have Him repeating all the laws. And uh, <laughs> um, Moses has been with these people for 40 plus years. And let's just say he doesn't have a lot of time. <laughs> uh, and so he, you know, you have the very famous chapter, chapter 28, and then chapter 30, and 32, of the Lord will bless you, and bless you with increase, and bless you with great, and shut now, and bless you with fear, and bless you with power, and bless you with fortune favor. And then something like 40 verses of curses. Including in those 40 verses is Moses knows, like, you guys are going to have to love yourself a lot. You're going to go into exile. You're going to go into exile. But the Lord will bring you back because the Lord's faithful even though you're in exile. Look at chapter 30, verse 5. Because Moses knows something deeper that he really wants. The Lord your God will bring you into the land your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous than any people that have known. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. What's wrong in the 
this whole thing isn't just that you can't obey, it's that your heart is hard. But there's going to be a work that God does that is going to circumcise your heart. Remember, the sign of the covenant would be in your fruitfulness. You need that level of cutting of the heart to make this whole thing work. You need a new heart so that you can love, so that you can live, so that you can obey, so that you can trust. Israel's problem isn't just an obedience problem on our side. Just like this book began with and all these stories are about Israel's hard heart. That what you see Pharaoh's hard heart at the beginning of Exodus is mirrored by Israel's hard heart by the end of the book. Then there's a sister. Moses, you have high hopes for him, and then just 
chapter 10, and he doesn't consult God, and he sends a band of, of, of soldiers. They get defeated, and then they wind in, and God's like, well, like we got to actually talk to you, because God's like, let's do this. Then they go forward, and then they, they don't consult God about uh, another nation that comes and deceives them. And so you're like, this is just not rolling out like you thought it was supposed to. They end up not conquering the whole land, and then Joshua dies, and this is just chapter seven, or Judges chapter 2. Go into the book of Judges. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Good, at least you got one generation. <laughs> and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done to Israel. And then verse 16. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done to Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord because they did not know the Lord or his works. When one generation, that's a real scary verse to me. One generation. It took one generation to forget all that the Lord had done. And then they Instead of choosing life, they just chose evil. And the book of Judges follows a downward spiral of how Israel became an evil nation. Where each judge just starts out like, hey, this is just pretty solid people. And then it's bad. And then it's getting violent, and then it's scary, and then it's this cycle where, well, they followed the Lord. And then they had a time where they didn't follow the Lord. And then they were oppressed. And then they cried out to the Lord, and God raised up a judge. And then they were set free for a period of time. Then they, then they served other gods, and then they got to put in you know, some kind of slavery, and they changed politics, and they became evil. Generation after generation became evil. And each judge gets progressively worse. And these stories are scary, where by the time you get to Gideon, it seems Gideon, hey, he can trust the Lord God, except the fact that he can't trust God, and he keeps trusting God over and over and over and over and over. Then God delivers him with a very small army, but <laughs> Gideon as response to one of the cities in Israel that didn't follow him out to battle, he takes him out and beats him with thorns. That's a great job. The next, the next judge, Jephthah, he sacrifices his daughter thinking that would honor God. Child sacrifice. Think that's, that's how unfamiliar with Israel's God he was. And Samson, yeah, he's a terrible man. And then you have the, the last section of the book of Judges is two stories. One story is, is them making idols and then eventually themselves. But those two stories are anchored four times with one verse. A verse at the beginning and end of the first story and the beginning and end of the second story. The second story is basically a, a the nation that goes from tribal kingdom to becoming a sovereign nation. It's equivalent to that. Israel became a sinner nation. Then you get to Judges. But the last section is, is framed four times with this one verse. This is the very last verse of the book of Judges. It's this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right or good in his own eyes. So the author is trying to tell the reader something. We're in a period where, where Israel is defining good and evil for themselves. And it's because there was no king. Hence, hence, 
We need a king around here. We need a king who can rule Israel and lead Israel to covenant faithfulness. And in the Hebrew Bible, you would turn the page and you would find the book of Samuel, which is a long backstory of King David and the Israelite covenant with King David and how that came about. So this whole story keeps moving us to the point of God's faithfulness over and over and over and human rebellion. And somehow, God is able to subvert all the evil humans do when it comes out of this story. But we just keep seeing generation after generation, who's going to get it right? Who's going to get it right? Is anyone going to get this right? Is anyone going to be faithful to God? And you'll see some high points, and some people get close, but the ultimate key is human rebellion. And only because of Jesus are we able to be pulled out of that. Galatians chapter 3 just puts a stamp of approval on the whole thing. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, quoting from the text, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, I'm cursed for all people. Cursed is everyone who is human so that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might fall on the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Lord through Jesus. Who's going to be blessed? Then what God wants to do is bless humans. What humans are terrible at doing is covering God. But what Christ Jesus did for us is he took all of this curse into himself, and now, by faith in Jesus, we can be the full participants of the blessing of Abraham, and not be under the curse of the law, but receive that blessing, and it comes through faith in Christ, through trust in him. And we don't bring anything to this. We don't bring anything that we bring to the table. We don't bring anything to this table. It's not that we bring a little bit of work here and a little bit of good attitude here and a little bit of doing better here. No, we come empty handed. And Jesus extends the fullness of the blessing to us by faith in him. And we didn't do anything to earn it. We couldn't do anything good to earn it. We couldn't do good enough. We couldn't earn our righteousness. We just can't. But, but because of Jesus, we can receive this blessing by faith. Just, just say, that's, that's all that we have is our gratitude. Empty hand, grateful heart. Our hearts being sanctified. Our hearts being set faithfully in Christ Jesus so that we can know God. Jesus is Thank you.